and they'll go out and kill people. And, you know, but it's those gun manufacturers. They're the ones that are to blame for all the crime in America, not the ones that pull the trigger. You had a case in law school where a burglar was up on top of a, of, of a building. He was at the skylight, and they painted over the skylight so it looked like the roof. And he was going to go break into a, a hardware store and basically only steal a floodlight. But he stepped on the glass, he fell through the, the skylight, and he permanently uh, disabled himself for life. And so he brought a lawsuit against the store. After all, it's the store's fault that I was breaking into the store and fell through the skylight. And he won the lawsuit. He won $260,000. And not only that, he, he, he worked out a settlement of $1,500 a month for the rest of his life for his disability, shifting the blame to someone else. You know, blame shifting is as old as the Bible itself. Some of you are already ahead of me. You're already in the book of Genesis. You know where we're going because you're thinking of the first examples of blame shifting that took place in the Scripture. You don't have to go any further than the Garden of Eden. Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God came to him, and what did he do? Blame shifted. Pointed the finger. He, he blamed God for his own disobedience. He blamed the woman that God gave him for his disobedience. Verse 12, it says, The man said, The woman whom you, you gave me uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And of course, the woman, I mean, God turns to her, and what does she do? She blames shifts. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, that serpent deceived me. And then I ate. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? We're quick. You know, when, we're, when, the, when the spotlight comes on us of guilt, being guilty, one of the first things we want to do is blame shift or blame someone else for our own sin or disobedience. Now, what I want you to do this morning, and this is what Paul, I believe, is doing in this passage, I want you to consider this question. Who is to blame if you die in your sin, and you're without forgiveness forever. And you're going to face the wrath of Almighty God. So when Judgment Day comes, if that's you, who are you going to blame? Who are you going to point the finger at for your own disobedience? Uh, whose fault will it be if your children, if your children don't come to Christ? Whose fault will it be if, if, if in fact, uh, your loved ones don't, don't come to Christ? Who are you going to blame for their loss or lack of salvation? You know, the temptation is to look around and, and to find someone, somewhere, we can point the finger to. You might want to blame the hypocrites. You know, God, if it wasn't for all those hypocrites you brought in my life, I, I easily, I would have become a Christian. But, but their hypocrisy, it just it soured me, and I just couldn't become a Christian. 
Or you might want to blame your parents because they never took you to church. Or blame your parents because they never brought you the gospel. Or your parents because they never opened up the Word of God. Or you might want to blame the pastor of the church that never preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I sit there year after year, and if I only would have heard God, I would have become a Christian. You know, there are those who might even blame God Himself because they read Romans chapter 9. And they sent a red. God, it's your fault. It's your fault I'm not saved. Uh, you didn't choose me before the foundation of the world. If you would have chosen me, I would have been saved. So it's your fault that I'm lost. I'm not one of your elect. I was created to be a vessel of wrath and rather than a vessel of mercy. I'm not responsible. You are God for being, and uh, for being condemned to an eternal sentence in the lake of fire. So again, I want to ask the question. This is going to be the question we're thinking about as we go through this passage. Uh, who is to blame? Who is to blame if you find yourself falling short on Judgment Day? You know, it's a practical question. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches the sovereign election of God. We spent a whole chapter looking at, at God's sovereignty and His unconditional choosing of some to salvation over others. It is God who, based on the counsel of His own Godhead, bestowed mercy on whom you have mercy and, and brings judgment on those in wrath, those who He chooses to bring wrath. But as we're going to see today, chapter 10 follows chapter 9. And there's a reason why. You just can't stop. The, Romans doesn't stop at the end of 9. Romans keeps on speaking to us. So we have to know the whole picture if we're going to understand our relationship to God. You remember where this opened up was that Paul lamented over his fellow Jews who would not enter into the kingdom of God. The problem was not the Word of God. We've seen that. God provided the Word. He provided the Gospel. In fact, He took the whole ninth chapter of the book of Romans to underscore that the rejection of the Jews was, was not a failure of God and His Word. It was part of His sovereign plan. God chose before the foundation of the world the people He was going to save. He made an unconditional choice. But, as we've been seeing through chapter 10, and we're really seeing it clearly at the end of chapter 10, uh, sovereign election does not negate personal responsibility. The 10th chapter has strongly declared that the reason why so many Jews were eternally lost is because they personally rejected Christ. It's not because God didn't choose them. He does choose. But ultimately, the responsibility falls on their shoulders, and they, they refuse to believe the gospel and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will richly bless all who call upon His name. God will richly save all those who call upon His name. And they did not call on His name. They did not confess Christ, and they were lost. So the Bible clearly teaches the sovereignty of God. We know that. But we also need to realize following chapter 9 is chapter 10. And that's where we see in, in clear focus that the Bible also teaches man's 
responsibility before God and man's personal accountability to trust in Christ. And those two must go hand in hand. If you take the sovereignty of God without man's personal responsibility, you go off into the air of, of hyper-Calvinism. If you embrace man's responsibility and man's will over the sovereignty of God, you'll go off into some Arminian path away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The two must go hand in hand. Why? Because that's how the Bible presents it, hand in hand. And I know, because Mary and I have had this conversation driving between here and Powell a few times, how do these two come together? And we never have the answer by the time we get to one of the towns. I mean, how do you balance the sovereignty of God, unconditional election, and man's personal responsibility? If anyone's lost, it won't be because they weren't chosen. If anyone's lost, it's because they refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so you try and put those together, and, and, and you say, well, responsibility, sovereignty, I believe in both. As we've seen earlier in this chapter, the two must go hand in hand. My mind can't process that. Maybe your mind can. But they're both there. But we must leave these truths where the Bible does, and we must leave them in a sense of tension in our own mind. I mean, today what Paul's going to do is going to remove any attempt to blame him or to blame anyone else for the Jews' failure to come to Christ. He's going to remove all the arguments for blame shifting. If any be lost, they'll be the result of their own unbelief and their personal failure to trust in Christ. So last week we saw that it is God that sends the preacher. Remember? Last week, last month. God sends the preacher. Uh, God has the message. The message goes out to the very where, heart of the person who hears it. And he brings it and delivers it to that person. And then the call comes out to believe and to trust and to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And the Jews heard the gospel. The message came to them of Christ. But all the Jews would not obey. They would not believe or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Even though God sent them forth with preachers, even though they did not preach the, the gospel, they, the, 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 even though they did preach the gospel, they did not obey it. And they, the Jews, uh, did not turn to Christ. And whoever the gospel is preached to, it, it calls for response. It calls for repentance. It calls for faith. And to not believe and not to turn is an act of disobedience to God. So what Paul is concluding is that not all, in fact, most of the Jews did not obey the gospel. And most of the Jews did not trust in Christ, did not repent, or turn to, to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So God stepped to commission preachers and to send out preachers and to bring the message, even bring the Messiah himself who was the message. They disobeyed. They refused to believe. And uh, what Paul's saying today is this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because this was spoken of the prophets. This was foretold by Isaiah. 
And he goes back to 53, chapter 53, that famous chapter in, in Isaiah where, where he quotes Isaiah here in, in chapter 10. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And literally, Lord, who's believed the gospel? And it's a rhetorical question because what's implied in the question is the answer. And what's implied in the answer? What is the implied answer? For the Lord who has believed what he has, who has believed what he has heard from us. And the, really the answer is no one. <laughs> That's the problem. None of the Jews believed. Sure, scattering here and there. But overall, most of the Jews did not trust in Christ as their Savior. You know... As we look at this passage, <clears throat> as we look at the Old Testament references that Paul gives us, uh, we see, first of all, in verse 17, a very familiar verse. So faith comes by hearing. That's where it starts. And then hearing comes through the word of Christ. And so he goes on to say, so consequently, in conclusion, in order to bring salvation, there must be faith. God produces faith, and faith comes by first hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I don't know if any of you have King James, New King James, but you'll see that yours has what? The word of... Anybody have King James? Huh? Hearing by the word of God, right? Not Christ. And that's, that's kind of interesting. It's a different, it's really a different text that's being translated from. But theos, they put in for God rather than just uh, for Christ or Christos. The word is not something that someone makes up. But the word is the word of Christ. And what does it mean, the word of Christ? Because this is where faith comes from, the word of Christ. And, and the word of there, the, the preposition, it, 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 it's either it has a subjective or an objective meaning to it. If it's subjective, you might interpret that to mean Christ who's doing the speaking. And so it's, and faith comes by Christ who does the speaking to you of the gospel. Or it has more of an objective understanding, and that is that Christ is the one spoken about. He's the, he is the message that brings faith. I was, you know, a lot of, we were talking last night after everyone left, uh, we opened it up and it's interesting. Anybody have the NIV? Do you? What with you? Well, I just where it says the word of does it say the word of Christ? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word about Christ. The word about Christ, and we, what we talked about was. What the NIV does, and this is what a more dynamic translation does, it, it interprets it for you. Rather than leaving it in a, in a point where, well, is it, is it objective? Is it subjective? It could be either one. I better study it out. I better find out what the real meaning is. I need to dig deeper into the, into the passage. Oftentimes with the NIV or some of the more dynamic translations, they'll, do this, they'll settle it for you. And you don't even realize there's a problem in the text to understand. And so that's uh, one of the downsides of the NIV, by the way. Um, but they did, they did translate it right here. So, <laughs> so it, it, it should be understood. You know, A.T. Robertson says, 
by the word about Christ, the objective genitive, which Alfred says is the instrument or the vehicle of the gospel message. Christ is, it's a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. Although both are true, Christ is speaking whenever the gospel goes out. God is speaking whenever you hear the word preached. But also the word that's being preached is the message about Christ. It's the good news. It's the substitutional death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his death, it's his burial, it's his resurrection. It's a realization that I, I, I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I'm trusting what Christ has done on my behalf. And I must hear that and believe that to be saved. Now, this brings us to the first blame-shifting argument that Paul's going to raise here. The blame-shifting argument that some Jew might hypothetically raise for not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, maybe they haven't heard, you see. If faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and I'm not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, why am I, I not believing in the Jesus Christ? Is because maybe I never heard, in a true sense of the word, the gospel. Now, how far is, is that argument going to go? Surely it cannot uh, be the Jews... Uh, never heard of Christ, never heard of the gospel. Maybe the gospel never came to them personally. Maybe the preachers uh, did not come to them uh, with the gospel. But surely many of them did. Surely uh, God can't be responsible for a person not hearing or, or repenting. It's not his fault. Maybe the fault of God, no, Maybe it's because God didn't send preachers. No, he saw that he has sent preachers. And by the way, this is a common blame-shifting argument that people still use today to defend themselves for not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I be responsible for believing in Jesus if I haven't heard the gospel? Have you heard people raise that objection? How can God hold an Eskimo responsible for not trusting in Christ um, when they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. No missionary ever went to that particular Eskimo. Or what about the Northwest West College student that I talked to a while back? You know, I went into the uh, computer lab, and he was in there and working away, and I started talking to him about Christ. It's, it was amazing because that night I just happened to have, I don't know why, a Japanese Bible. I mean, I didn't expect or plan to talk, right, find someone that spoke just Japanese. But here we are in the computer lab. He's doing his thing, and he can talk broken English. And I said, hey, look what I got here. I have got the Word of God in your language. And so we talked about Christ, and I began to present to him the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. And he says, I've never heard that before. You know, I... How could I, and he asked me this, how, how, how can I be accountable to God if I've never heard about Jesus Christ before? Can we blame God for not bringing that message to him? Bring it to the Eskimo, bring it to the Japanese uh, young man? Paul replies here, you can't blame God. You can't blame the preacher. Because, listen carefully, everyone has heard. 
there is no blame shifting because everyone has heard the gospel or at least the good news about God. Now, we've seen this before in Romans, and we need to break it down here. We have what's called what? General revelation. You remember that? And then we have what's called special revelation. And we said that general revelation is what God communicates of himself to everybody in the whole world. And he does that through nature. But yet the specific message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the special revelation that's found in the scriptures. And uh, not everyone has heard that. So what does it mean here when it says that everyone's heard the gospel? Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. In other words, they can't blame God, blame shift. They hadn't heard. And here he's quoting from Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Have they not heard? And Paul's saying, of course they've heard. All have heard. Now the part that Paul, this is what's interesting about this quote. The part that Paul is quoting from um, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, Paul is, uh, uh, the, the, the psalmist is speaking about general revelation, okay? He's speaking about the mountains and the skies and the order of things and in creation, and that's what he's quoting here. And he's saying their voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the end of the world. And so he's saying that they're without excuse because they've seen general revelation. Now here's the problem with this passage. Can you be saved by general revelation? Can I go out into the big horns of the bear tooth or I look up at the sky or stare off at the uh, rainbow yet last night that was so beautiful and say, oh, God, I believe in you and I'm going to be saved. Can I be saved by the rainbow? Can I be saved by the clouds? Can I be saved by the mountain? Can I be saved by the, by the beauty and the order of nature? Is that sufficient revelation of God for me to come to a saving knowledge of God and to have all my sins forgiven and have the gift of everlasting life? And the answer is, no. I mean, if that's the case, why, what in the world are we sending Pete to Africa for? I mean, they got a better view of, of, of general revelation there than we have here. It's, it's beautiful there. Skies are beautiful. The animals have stripes on them. I mean, it's pretty amazing. The necks on those giraffes are really, really tall, I'll tell you. When you see the, the tree line and then the giraffe shooting up above the tree line looking around like this, you go, this, that's amazing. Why send Pete to Africa if, in fact, all the people in Kenya need to do is look at nature and be saved? And then why is Paul quoting from Psalm 19, verse 4, a section dealing with the general revelation of God as a proof text for that the Jews are without excuse in not believing in Christ? Now, Paul is quoting exactly, literally, from the Septuagint in verse 4 of Psalm 19. And the psalmist is saying, and it, uh, preachers could, uh, don't need to go into all the world because God has revealed himself through creation, through nature, through design. So how do we look at this verse? 
should it be taken literally that, you know, I just believe in the, the trees and the order of creation and order of uh, revelation around us and the mountains and the snow and be saved? No. Obviously, that's not what, what Paul is meaning here. Leon Morris, in one of my commentaries, writes, the gospel has been wide enoughly preached for it to be said that the representative of the Jews throughout the known world had heard it. And so that he, he's speaking in terms of, of that. The problem is that doesn't work in the context of, uh, of Psalm 19, dealing with general revelation of God. How does a verse of general revelation about God show that the Jews are without excuse for not believing and trusting in Him. Um, another commentary I have is by a guy named Moo. He's on a cow. Uh, he, uh, he writes this. Most commentators explain this by saying that Paul is using an analogy. Just as God's Natural revelation proclaims His glory to all the earth, so now the gospel has been proclaimed over all the earth, especially with reference to the Jews. So it's like an analogy, just like general revelation goes out to everybody, so now the gospel is going out to everybody like that, even though it hasn't gone totally out to everybody. And, and that's true. But I think we have to look at this a little bit deeper than that. I believe what Paul is suggesting is this. I believe that Paul is suggesting that this verse that Paul is quoting from Psalm 19.4 about natural revelation, is, he's saying this, that the whole world, including every Jew, has had natural revelation brought before their eyes, their hearts, Everywhere they can see that there is a God, there is an order, and they've rejected it. They've rejected natural revelation. And I believe the argument he's making is this. If you reject natural revelation to reveal to you that our God is one God, and He's creator of the heavens and the earth, and you start worshiping the creation rather than the creator, that even if God would send you His Savior, you would reject Him. Why? Because you rejected the very revelation He's given to everybody, the general revelation of God. He goes on, remember back in Romans 1, when we opened that up in verse 18, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are these words whose voice is not heard. Everyone sees this. Everyone hears this. The voice that goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So in other words, the revelation of God is God speaking to the whole world through His handiwork. I mean, I went on Facebook a little bit this morning, and I mean, Facebook is, is lit up with that rainbow last night. I don't know how many of you saw that, but it was a, you know, I don't know if you can see it for looking the other way from, from Powell or not, but looking towards Powell. 
I mean, some of you going home last night saw it. But I mean, the, go to Facebook, listen to the pictures that are there. It's a double rainbow. And there's people saying, I've never seen anything like this before. It's amazing. And it was. Because the lower rainbow, underneath it was all lit up in white. And then above that is this, the secondary rainbow above it. And God created that. Remember, that's, that's one of his uh, seals of his promise to us. That he's not going to flood the earth again. But it was like something you don't re- regularly see. And so what happens? You go, wow. But how many people that put that on Facebook actually went, wow, and said, look at the God who's so glorious, the creator of that rainbow. And it's offering praise and glory to the true and living God for what he has done. That's not the normal response. So the psalm deals with nature, the heavens, the moon, the stars, declaring the glory of God to all the earth through his handiwork. Paul is drawing from the psalm to make two important points about how God makes known his gospel to the world. And he uses general revelation, but he uses general revelation to condemn people. He uses general revelation to say, you are without excuse. I gave the whole world a revelation of my handiwork, and you rejected it. And if you rejected that, you would reject my son if you heard the gospel presented to you more than likely. He uses both general and special revelation to reveal himself. God is preaching and revealing his glory through the stars and the sky, through the mountains, the snow, uh, through just the order that you see in creation itself. You know, I had a, a step, uh, well, my father-in-law, he, uh, he saw order in creation. I'm not sure if he ever came to a saving knowledge of Christ, but he didn't really acknowledge it was God behind the order that he saw. Being a hospital administrator and uh, dealing with these matters, he realized that, uh, you know, that a woman... Uh, has a, a season of fertility, and then it stops. And then when that season of fertility comes to an end, if she has a child about that time, more than likely, generally, she'll live long enough to raise the child. But just think if a woman was just, you know, was able to bear children for the rest of her life. So she's my age, you know, 70-something years old, and all of a sudden she uh, has a child and she dies next year. Who's going to take care of that baby? See, God had this all in order, and he figured this all out. And he was amazed that he saw that, but he never gave credit to God for it. It's, uh, so he's doing this. He's showing his handiwork. He's showing the order of his creation and uh, to point us to himself. And, of course, that's the message really behind Romans 1.18. Even the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here he is revealing himself. He's showing his handiwork, and they're suppressing and said, can't be God. Must be evolution. It's got to be something else. Pushing it away. For what can be known of God is plain. It's obvious because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. People know ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You know what that means? You can't blame shift. 
You can't say, I didn't know God. You're without excuse. So hopefully you see what Paul's saying here. There's no room for blame shifting to God saying, I'm ignorant about the gospel. I'm ignorant about you. He's revealed himself to all of mankind through creation, through the natural revelation, through the fine order of the universe that's so perfect. And if the whole world can be without excuse, those of us in Wyoming have absolutely no excuse because we have, I think, one of the best revelations of all of creation everywhere around us that they don't have in New York City. I mean, we've got the grandeur of the mountains and just the smoky display of the Milky Way in the middle of the summertime shooting right across the sky, stars this big and above our head, rainbows before our eyes, double rainbows. I mean, the handiwork around us is everywhere. It's shouting out loud to us here. And yet people will not bow their knee to God or look to Him as Creator or give Him glory. The invisible things of God can be seen from His handiwork. They're without excuse. In fact, it goes on in Romans verse one twenty-one to say, For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God. They didn't give Him thanks. But they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying, there's no room to blame God that that I, I didn't know. You knew God through general revelation. And of course, if you're in this room, you know God, and you're going to leave here today knowing God through special revelation as well. You say, well, wait a minute, general revelation doesn't show Christ. You're right, it doesn't. A person must hear the gospel to be saved. The word of faith in order to must be believed and, and received to be have your sins forgiven. But here's the key. I believe what Paul's saying here is this. If you won't believe in the general revelation that points to God as creator, the one who deserves all the glory, and give him thanks, even if someone comes and preaches you the gospel, more than likely you'll reject it. And so there's enough revelation that the whole world's going to be under the judgment of God. But we still want to take the gospel out, don't we? We want to take it to the whole world. Take the special revelation of what Christ has done, because that's the message that's going to bring forgiveness and everlasting life. There's enough revelation to judge through, through general revelation, but not enough to save. And I think one of the great, great examples in Scripture of, of one who was a God-fearing man, who wasn't a Christian, God seems to have ways of getting the gospel to those people. In other words, those who God seems to be there, and they're looking and seeing, and they're bowing and thanking, and there's one God. He has a way of getting the gospel to those people for salvation. I don't know if you remember a man named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Cornelius was a Gentile. He feared God, but he wasn't a Christian. He never heard the gospel. He had to hear the gospel message. And so what did God do? Well, he had to connect two people to bring the gospel to Cornelius. He had to bring Peter, 
who was already prejudiced against Gentiles, wasn't even planning on going to see Cornelius, and taking him and intersecting their lives so that he would hear the gospel and be saved. I mean, God was preparing the heart of Peter and Cornelius at the same time. Cornelius, send your servant out. Find Peter. Bring him here. And so, and of course, he was dealing with Peter, you know, as far as his prejudice against Gentiles. And in Acts 10.36 it says, For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news. This is the message that when Peter finally got to, to Cornelius' house, this is the message he brought. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee, from the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed and by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him appear to appear, not to all the people, but, but, but to us who had, who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him and saw him. He rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him. See, here's the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to him. Receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Another comparison that Paul brings us from the Psalms, just like nature springs forth before our eyes, our hearts, and our ears, so too the gospel is spreading forth into the whole world. And by the way, by the time that uh, Paul wrote uh, 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 chapter 10, the gospel had made great advances by that time. I mean, the, as far as the known world goes, it had pretty much spread and was continuing to spread at that time. You know, in the second century, the historian Justin Martyr wrote this, this is the state of affairs of that part of the world. There's no people, Greek or barbarian, or any other race by whatever appellation or manners they may be distinguished. However ignorant of arts or their agriculture, or whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgiving are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus, to the Father and Creator of all things. The gospel has spread that effectively throughout the known world. The Jews are without excuse. The, even the special revelation had been spread. They had heard. No one can complain. No one can blame shift. He's made himself known. There's one second argument where the Jews might have shifted the blame for their unbelief. That is blaming God for their lack of understanding. They, what they might argue, and he, and he brings it up here, is, yeah, sure, they might uh, have heard the gospel. Yeah, it did come to us. But God, we couldn't understand it. So it's your, again, it's your fault because it's a message we can't understand. It's too hard to comprehend. How can we be responsible for the gospel? How can we believe when we can't even grasp it? 
And here you are saving the Gentiles and the Jews and the promises you made to us. We can't figure it out. Well, Paul's going to answer that objection in the last verses of this uh, whole book, 19 to 21. And he shows that it, it wasn't ignorance. That's not the problem. It's not an inability to understand. It's absolute refusal to believe. Verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, quoting it here from Deuteronomy 32, 21. Yes, rhetorical question. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. And so the Jews went their own way, realizing that the gospel of grace was open to the Gentiles and always has been. And I'm gonna, I did that to make you jealous, Jews. In other words, you, you, you knew, you rejected, they knew, they believed, and you are responsible. A non-nation like the Gentiles, multitudes of them are turning to Christ. They understand. And they're trusting in Savior for salvation. And why is God doing that? To provoke the Jews to come to Christ. In other words, God's doing all to extend His grace to the foolish nations. The senseless people, people like you and me, the Gentiles. Even some of us have come to faith in Christ. Why are they receiving all the blessing, as you might ask? Why aren't we receiving the blessing? It's because they believed. You didn't. And so you can see how the answer here attempts at blame shifting falls flat on its face. You knew. You had the prophets. You had the sacrifices. They had nothing. They were ignorant. They believe. They understand. You can understand. Why don't you believe? Because of your stubborn refusal. You know, it could be you're here today making the same objection that these Jews are making. Perhaps you have found yourself shifting the blame why you're not a Christian. And maybe you got your own list. Maybe it's longer than the two that I've mentioned. You know, God, only if you made the, the gospel a little easier for me to understand, then maybe I would become a Christian. I mean, here I hear the message preached up front. He's using words like justification and propitiation. He's using words like a double imputation. And here I am, just an average guy or gal. How can I understand the gospel with those kind of words? They make no sense to me. And so the problem isn't me, God. It, it, it's the difficulty of the message that, that, that you're giving me to believe. If you would have given me more intellect, perhaps I would comprehend. And God responds to that objection right here by telling us you are responsible. You have heard and you have understood. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. You refuse. You refuse to come, and you refuse to believe. You refuse to trust. You delight in your sin. You want to continue in your sin. You don't want to turn from your sin. So don't blame God for your stubborn refusal. In fact, let me just put it this way. I mean, we can dig as deep as we want into the gospel. We can mine it deeper and deeper. There's books written that are probably this thick about the gospel. and We have all eternity to learn about the depths of the gospel. 
But its very essence is simple. That even a child, I believe, many child, many children can simply become Christians. How simple is it? It's as simple as you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've broken the law of God. Now, how hard is it to understand that? I mean, some of our youngest children that are here today probably understand the fact that God's Word says you're to honor your father and mother. You're to obey your parents. And if you disobey your parents and you disobey your mom and dad, you've broken the law of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. A child can understand that. It's death. Why do people die? Because they sin. They break the law of God. And each one of us come to the law and we realize we've, we've broken it. The Spirit of God convicts us. And then the message comes to even a child and, and tells us what? That there's a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He, he came into this world as a man. And, and as, as we have the God-man in this world, he, he died on a cross, and his substitutionary death on the cross did something. It accomplished something. It saved the people. Anyone who would believe and trust in what he did on their behalf would be forgiven and have his righteousness imputed to them. You know... You can't get much more simple than that. I know some of you might think in these terms that, uh, well, I'm not going to become a Christian because I believe those Christians are a bunch of weak sisters. You ever heard that? It's an old-fashioned term, but I mean, in other words, it's another way of saying, these people need a crutch. I don't need a crutch. I'm going to blame shift it on God because I don't need a crutch, God. And you find out that what God has done is He's brought salvation to those who are weak. Those who do realize they need a spiritual crutch. And He's done that to really shame those who think that they don't need a crutch. And then you realize they have forgiveness and they have joy and they have everlasting life. And, and I've got all the wealth of the world and I've got all the smarts of the head, but I'm lost. And God uses that to bring them to Christ. I mean, it's so simple that when the Philippian jailer cried out after an earthquake, God, what must I do to be saved? I mean, Paul didn't open up a treatise on justification by faith and start quoting, you know, all. No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's simple. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's simple. You will be saved. And you can spend the rest of eternity understanding the depths of all that that means. So God is saying, you can't blame shift anymore. That's why 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jew, it's a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And God's chosen the foolish things in the world to confound the wise, and ultimately to bring them to 
faith in Christ. So for those reasons, unless you turn to Christ and stop blaming God or stop blaming someone else for your lack of unbelief, uh, none of that is going to deflect. The wrath of God is still going to come. There's one more proof that the Jews uh, did understand and have no room to shift the blame. Uh, God's proving it again from Isaiah 65, 1, verse 20. Look at your Bible where it says, But Isaiah is very bold and says, I have found by those that did not seek uh, me, I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And here he's quoting from Isaiah 65.1. And what Isaiah did is predicted God's calling of the Gentiles. He's prophesying it in a very bold manner. And the Gentiles were not even able to look for salvation, and they heard it. And they understood it. And they believed. The Gentiles weren't even asking for God to help, received eternal forgiveness. So yes, God is sovereign, right? We started, that's where we began. God is sovereign. God chose before the foundation of the world those whom he's going to save. He did so unconditionally. Those are in his sovereign hands. But no one can blame God for being lost and under the wrath of God because they can blame God for saying, but God, you didn't choose me. Because with that comes the teaching that Every person is going to be held morally responsible to believe the gospel and to trust in Christ. Trust in what he's done on your behalf. Each one of us stands personally accountable before our creator for not trusting in the one he sent to be the salvation of the world. And then we come to the last verse here where we see a sad result, where this whole chapter ends. It closes with God's hand extended to the Jews, his arms of mercy stretched out wide. And if you tie in the preaching of Christ and, and in the Gospels where he looked over, over Israel and lamented and cried because they would not come, tie that in with this verse where it says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, I want you to contrast verse 21 with the sovereignty of God in chapter 9 without any way delineating from the fact that God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign over the souls of all He's going to save. Here we see God in verse 21 with His hands out, stretched. We see Christ looking out over Israel with tears in His eyes. And he held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Israel responds to such grace, they rejected him. He said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Chapter 9, but now we read in verse 21. And here's a picture of God to just put in your mind and etch it there. Does your God... In your mind, does it allow for a God whose hands are outstretched, 
over a people who are refusing to come to him and, and, and bow to him and, and confess their sins and turn from their wicked ways. If your view of God is one that's hard, that ends in chapter 9 alone, and you come away with a callous, cold view of God whose elective purposes are, are all there are, you end up like the preacher that I heard a while back that in London stood up and he preached the gospel and he says, God will save whom he's going to save, and he walked off. Ah, but there was a pastor who didn't read chapter 10. Yeah, God will save whom he's going to save, but he's a God whose hands are outstretched. They're open wide to all who are disobedient, all who are contrary, calling them to come to him. How do you resolve those chapter 10, chapter 9? They're both precious, aren't they? If it leaves a tension in your mind, amen. Let it sit there. Let it stay there. God will save all whom he is going to save. That's period. But also realize this, he's a God of compassion. He's the same God who calls you to come. Don't bring your money. Leave it behind. Just come. Leave it all behind. Just simply come to me. I mean, Revelation closes that way with a plea to come to him. Sovereignty and, and personal responsibility are not contradictory. And I believe when we preach the gospel, we need to preach chapter 10 along with chapter 9. Many of you need to hear chapter, chapter 9. You're so off on the free will side of things that you just don't understand that God's sovereign. He makes the choice. But some of you are so strong in chapter 9, you don't realize that this is a God of compassion. This is a God whose arms are open wide. This is a God who's calling people to come to Christ. I mean, preachers behind the pulpit should have their arms open wide. Representative of God himself calling you, pleading with you to leave your sins behind and simply trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. And each one of you are ambassadors and you're sent out into this world. You have friends, loved ones, people that you work with. And they need to hear about a God, yes, who's sovereign, we never want to apologize for that. We believe that. That's the basis of our eternal security. We're going to persevere. But you know what I think many people need to hear today is a God who's so full of compassion, a God whose arms are wide open, calling people to come to himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All day long, God stretched forth his hands to the Jews. You see his tenderness? You see his compassion towards sinners. You see his patience. You see his long-suffering towards sinners. But here's the sad, this is why it's so sad. Verse 21. Instead of the people coming, the Jews, they were disobedient and obstinate and lost. And so we see that the contrary is, it says here in the verse 21, they refused him. They slighted his mercy. And they're going to be held personally responsible for the rejection of Christ.
What a picture of God. Stretched out hands, a beautiful picture Paul paints before our eyes at the close of this chapter. God standing before the Jews with hands widely stretched as an invitation to come. Come with tender compassion. Come. There's no room for blame shifting when it comes to the gospel. I mean, within 75 years from now, I don't know, I think this is right. Within 75 years from now, we're all going to see Jesus face to face. Do you realize that? Either he's coming back and we're all going to see him face to face, or we're going to be dead. And we're going to see him face to face. And there is a judgment day that's coming as well. And on that day, you're going to be there. Do you realize that? If you're a non-Christian, you're going to be there standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to either be, I believe we're all going to be shut silent before God. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to have our finger pointed in, in blame shifting. But I'm sure we're doing it here rather than there. There's going to be no room for blame shifting on that day. He's going to look into your heart. He's going to see sin. He's going to see disobedience. He's going to realize that the judgment is coming. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And you would not come. My arms were wide open. All of your life, my arms were wide open. And you rejected my son. You rejected his sacrificial death. And now you must pay by the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Each one of us is going to have to give an account for our sins. God stands before us this day, His divine arms wide open, extended, and He's saying to each one of us to come. And if you haven't come to Christ, let me call you on His behalf. It's His sacrificial death of His Son. His taking the wrath for us. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves but simply fall on Christ by His grace as a gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Trust Him today. Spurgeon said this, Unbelief will destroy the best of us. Faith will save the worst of us. And many of us have fallen into that camp. And thank you for the grace and the faith that he's given us. And Father, we close today thanking you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for...